You're listening to the Mole Hill Podcast, an audio anthology of treasured writings read aloud by the writers themselves. I'm your host, Drew Miller. The knowing is in silence. The house, framed by underlit clouds, across the river's Renoir-stippled sheen, could be a scene from out of time. A storied farmhouse, ruminating behind maples sparsely copsed, and known in winter's leaflessness only by their shape, a beauty limbed in yearly death. Here, we're lost inside the evening car, beneath the pelting rain of New Year's Day. Like drums or trains distant on the roof, forming a bell jar, inside which your grief, fatherless and void, digs for purchase in my silence, staring down my words, daring them to breach your tempest. The river is where we view comings and goings, under spanning trusses between the caissons, currents unseen press and join their alluvial might, plowing broad slurries of loam down, down to the sea, which is vast and doesn't presume to stem your tired weeping, but weeps until all things are new. That was Adam Whipple reading his poem, the Knowing is in Silence, originally found in the Mole Hill, Volume 5. If you're scratching your head right now, certain that what you just heard was a work of genius, but less certain of precisely what it means, I would like to bring your attention to the fact that each episode of this podcast has its very own transcript. Just check the description in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you're using, and you'll find a link to view these transcripts. Adam Whipple's poetry is sharp and many-layered, and unless you possess a sort of supernatural hyperliteracy, it'll take several reads or listens to soak it all in. And now it's time to listen to Helena Sorensen, but if you'll indulge me for a moment, I simply must share a dubious fact with you that I've learned about Helena. Once you hear it, you'll never see her the same way again. During the writing process for her novel, The Door on Half Bald Hill, Helena Sorensen shaved the left side of her head in its entirety so that every morning when she looked in the mirror, she would behold the landscape of her imagination. And that is why she is now known as Half Bald Helena. Now, a few words about Helena's piece, Feelings Like Water. It first appeared on the Rabbit Room blog in November of 2018, offering the densely packed metaphor of snow to name some of the most vulnerable and intimate motions of the soul, from birth to childhood to adolescence to adulthood. In less than 1,000 words, Helena manages to illustrate the many deaths and rebirths that define a human life. I'll leave you with this comment that fellow Rabbit Room contributor Matthew Sear left on Helena's post back when it was first published. He wrote, If a thousand years ago there was an ancient tribe forgotten in the vastness of the steppe or on a tiny windswept island, and that tribe had an old medicine woman, 
who, after a long life of canny discernment and honest searching out of the ways of the world, had been met by the Almighty and received the fire of heaven directly, apart from any converse with Western civilization, and with her last breaths, she took a sharpened bone and some pigment and marked down her final words to her people on an animal hide. I think that leather scroll would read something like this. Long ago, in the quiet of our mother's wombs, the snow began to fall. Blood and water and food came into our bodies and nourished us. Endorphins washed over us along with surges of cortisol and adrenaline. An invisible womb of emotion surrounded us too, an atmosphere of fear or bitterness or rage. We breathed that air and the snow fell. We fought through a narrow place, through waves of pressure, to enter the world, and here we found the snow still falling. We cried our loneliness, our helplessness, our hunger and discomfort. We stretched our limbs to explore. We stumbled and fell. We met pain. We learned to make demands, and whether they were answered or ignored, the snow fell. We fought for attention, for freedom, for mastery. Mommy could not be bothered, and Daddy was angry, and there was no money, and still the snow fell. We learned to interact with our siblings and our peers, or not. We discovered we were intelligent, skilled, funny, beautiful, or not. We got a taste of how frightening the world is, how things we love can die and break and disappear. With the energy of childhood, we pounded the fallen snow beneath us. Our feet hit that cold soul soil, running and running, crawling and jumping and riding, playing make-believe. And by the time we were reading and writing sentences, learning history and practicing our multiplication tables, most of us had packed the snow into glaciers. With the energy of childhood, we raced from peak to peak while the ice groaned beneath us. How silently the glaciers moved, shaping the continents of our inner worlds. We lurched into adolescence and adulthood, little thinking of these interior landscapes. We had no language for description, no tools for comparison. For us, this was the world. The bulk of the glaciers, the layers of snow packed hard, the sole edges ground down by their continual push. This was home. This is home. We choose how and with whom we spend our days, thinking our choices are free and spontaneous. They're not. The glaciers press and press, and unconsciously we bend to their will. Not seeing ourselves, not knowing what bends us, we bump against people who've been shaped differently. There is conflict, so we pray for restoration. There is stagnancy, so we pray for change. There is suffering, so we pray for deliverance. And not missing a word of the unwritten lines between our prayers, the Spirit hovers over us. He is patient, unhurried, so still his presence goes unnoticed. Yet, under the warmth of his wings, the glaciers begin to soften and crack. It is the process of years, this unmaking, this slow discovery that the ground beneath our feet is not solid earth. It is changeable. Increasingly, as the Spirit breathes, it is fluid. Now the packed snows of ages move and flow, cutting paths across our souls. Glaciers shape continents, but so do rivers, and their work is clearly seen. It can be quick, violent, 
Rivers in flood can destroy, and water this new living shape can push too. We watch in fear and wonder as the old beliefs emerge in trickles and waves. Emotions rise until we fear we will drown, till we stand on tiptoe, straining to catch a breath. But time passes, and the waters settle into their banks. Their murmuring, their familiar paths no longer terrify. But even this is not enough. For rivers carve canyons, and though they are fluid, still they whisper the old lies, the old feelings. So the spirit comes and shines like the desert sun on the waters. It comes in tragedy and loss, in disillusionment. We feel the scorching heat and cry out, begging for healing, for peace, for sanctuary in the cool silence of the old ways. This is the crucial moment, when the sun lifts the waters. Within the elemental heart of them, everything speeds up, expands. What we believed was true before we knew truth rises as steam encircling us. In this last rush of panic, we see the heartache, the lies that shaped our souls, risen up before our eyes, full of energy, explosive and light, rising and rising. In this last moment, we know the names of things. Anger, abandonment, despair. We know what they have done to us, and yet we see the Spirit's work. Here at last is our chance to let go. We weep and exhale, and the waters rise, filling the sky. The invisible ice beneath us becomes the invisible vapor above, named, released into atmosphere, and rendered powerless. In letting go, we are freed. To those who stand on what seem to be continents eternally fixed, I know how frail is your hope. I know how large the body of compacted snow, how difficult to see its movement, its shaping, how little you can imagine a different inner world. The spirit hovers over you now, and in his breath is hope. His work is subtle. Watch for him. Listen to the sound of melting ice, fat droplets falling and splashing. Before you know it, rivers will run. To those who see the rush and flow of running water, I understand your fear. So much force, so much movement looks like destruction. You do not recognize yourself, and things are changing, changing. This is what you've wanted, this is what you've prayed for. The raging waters are cutting a new path, a new world. Stand aside and watch it take shape. Do not be afraid. To those who feel the rising heat, I recognize your panic. You are so close to healing and freedom. Never have the old lies been so evident. Never have they so obscured your vision. Take heart. Unclench your fists and exhale. The goodness of God has brought you to this place. Let the vapors rise and breathe the free air. Swimming at Meads All here is tired and weary of pummeling. The burrows harbor pockets of stagnant redolence, sour with old summer like bodies at day's end. Freight engines howl down rickets of track late hours, keening like beggars unshod. I slip off my clothes and wade into lonesome quarry water, feeling for the drop-off, then kneeling and turning into bottomless space below space. Freestyle and breaststroke 
my mind pierces and resists piercing the decades-old limestone depth. What blind lithic fish creep pale along the bottom, wrung up from yearless karst by scouring workmen and scouring machines raping the grounds to acquire the ground itself, as if one might only have by breaking. Lurking in the still silt catch are dormant dragons of men, bent wrecks of rat-toothed tractors that chewed the hills, now gutted by rust and left to expire in slurries of tires and mud. The asphalt plant drapes noxious fire-reek on the iron-cold creek. Veins of caustic cloud torque up from squat silver vats of tar and practical macadam. An amber flush flames the sky, the false dawn of downtown lights. Past the ridge's silhouette, the city appears to burn, or to portend its burning, like an old jack pine in need of resurrection by fire. All here is tired and weary of pummeling. But distant stars occasion through the stratum of burnt-out cloud. As I leave the water and dress, an exercise of minutes, the ripples of my small disturbance echo through the dark. I stay to watch, then leave, but the ripples echo more, like a light within the tabernacle door. That was another fine piece of poetry by Adam Whipple called Swimming at Meads, which also originally appeared in Volume 5 of The Molehill. And in these final minutes of Episode 3, you and I both know that we have one last segment of the show. It's the one and only Words of Befuddlement. Last week's word was very befuddling indeed, and it yielded a plethora of creative definitions from our listeners. It was the noun tomb, not T-O-M-B, but T-O-O-M. Here are some definitions I received this week. Tomb, a culinary term used to describe the scooping and pouring qualities of a ladle or serving spoon. Tomb the act of asking for a second piece of cake while one's mouth is still filled with the first. Example sentence. I told little Hagrid the other day that in our family, we deem it improper to give in to anyone's tomb, be it for cake or for spare ribs. Tomb. To meet one's end by getting crushed by a boulder or a largish rock. Tomb an item in a personal collection that is of unknown origin, similar to a souvenir or keepsake, but is empty of meaning and has no memory attached to it. Tomb, a room without windows. It amounts to a tomb after all, T-O-M-B. Tomb, a room that was previously two rooms, a two-room room, or tomb, or of course, tomb. Tomb. The feeling you get when you sprawl on the ground, whether it be a meadow, playground gravel, your half-shaven lawn, or half 
bald hill, as it were, and drink in the smell of earth and growing things, as the sky above you threatens in a friendly sort of way to swallow you up in its vastness, a feeling of smallness in the world paradoxically linked to an inherent connectedness to creation and its maker. Common usage, a heart full of tomb, a tombful afternoon, a tombsome sight. Thank you to everyone who sent in a definition. These were so creative and fun little surprises to receive in my inbox throughout the week. As wonderful as these definitions were, unfortunately, none of them came close to the original definition from Pete Peterson, who defined tomb as a place reserved for burial of the animated dead. And now I will give you this week's word of befuddlement. I invite you to send in your own made-up definition of this word to drew at rabbitroom.com, and I might just read it during next week's show. This week's word is oblute. O-B-L-O-O-T. It's a noun, oblute. Well, that's it for episode three of the Mole Hill Podcast. Tune in next week for more poetry, stories, and shenanigans. Special thanks to Adam Whipple, Helena Sorensen, Zach and Maggie, and Ron Block, whose music was not featured on this episode, but whose name is still in my show notes. But hey, it's a great opportunity to promote Ron Block, who has an awesome record out called A Light So Fair. It's his instrumental guitar album that he put out recently. You can find it at store.rabbitroom.com and at ronblock.com. But as I said, his music was not featured in this episode. It was featured in episode two. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. To learn more, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. See you next week. Thank you.